and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Zara Kasamali Escobar, and I am an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the UW Medicine Valley Medical Center in Renton, Washington, and a clinical faculty member at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Today, my guests are two people leading the charge in evaluating and rethinking antimicrobial usage in dentistry, Dr. Katie Suda and Dr. Aaron Kennedy. Dr. Suda is a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. She earned her Doctor of Pharmacy from Drake University, completed her PGY-1 residency at Baptist Memorial Healthcare in Memphis, Tennessee, and an Infectious Diseases and Outcomes Research Fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In addition, she has a master's degree in epidemiology from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Dr. Kennedy earned her Doctor of Medical Dentistry from Nova Southeastern College of Dental Medicine. She completed a general practice residency at the VA in Baltimore and a dental public health residency at Harvard. She inaugurated a master's in science program at Harvard in dental education and recently earned that designation as well. Last May, Dr. Suda and her colleagues published an assessment of antibiotic prescriptions for infection prophylaxis for dental procedures in JAMA, which was the first national analysis of these data in the US and found around one in five antibiotics were prescribed appropriately. Both Dr. Suda and Dr. Kennedy are co-authors on a recent American Dental Association guideline for appropriate usage of antibiotics in management of pulpal and periapical related dental pain and intraoral swelling. Dr. Kennedy was a part of the team who developed the Antibiotic Stewardship Toolkit for oral health teams in Massachusetts. This is the second and final part of the Breakpoints episode examining use of antibiotics in dentistry. So I was just reviewing the American Association of Pediatric Dentistry or AAPD reference manual on antibiotic therapy. And it says quite clearly the minimum duration of drug therapy should be five days beyond the point of substantial improvement or resolution of signs and symptoms. It does suggest a duration of five to seven days altogether though. But the um, ADA guidelines, which you both co-authored, recommend a duration between three and seven days. So what, what were the antibiotic dis duration discussions like when you were drafting these guidelines? Was it a contentious issue? No, all of the panel, panel members were really supportive of the data. So the studies that we used to inform the guidelines typically used either three, five, or seven days of antibiotics for the treatment of oral infections. Of note, though, Zara, you know, just like in other studies of urinary tract infections or respiratory tract infections, the studies used to be done with using antibiotics for a longer duration, and the more recent studies are investigating antibiotics for a shorter duration. So in the guidelines, they do recommend that when antibiotics are indicated, that patients communicate with their dentists when symptoms resolve, and that dentists should consider discontinuing antibiotics in immunocompetent patients after symptom resolution. And to add to that, Katie, I think it's really important because so many dentists may see patients on an emergency basis, basis, especially during the times of COVID-19. And this just reminds us all that close patient monitoring is such an essential part of comprehensive care, whether that includes an emergency visit or long-term care of patients. And so then we should be reevaluating our patients within a few days, I would say three days. Um, and you should instruct your patient to discontinue these antibiotics 24 hours after their symptoms resolve. What are some of the, what you would consider maybe low-hanging fruit for stewardship? 
I think the first would go back to the note template that I talked about during the last podcast. And so I, there's a community health center leader in the Massachusetts area that actually took the chart audit for antibiotic stewardship that I created for dentists. And they put that into a note template that you could use during the exam or after the exam to basically click through and walk you through not only a decision-making tool, but the information that you need to make an evidence-based decision. And the goal here would not be telling the dentist what to do, but really making this thought process and decision-making process easy to follow. So I would encourage anyone who has a small private practice, a large series of clinics or a hospital, or if you were, um, heck, if you were (laughs) even someone who owned an electronic health record, if you built this decision-making tool and worked with dentists to build this antibiotic stewardship into your program or your software across the country, I mean, I think it's low-hanging fruit because in many ways, this is an environmental measure. You know, it's like an air purification system in your office, right? That's something that's constantly working without behavior change. A second would be to encourage and educate oral health providers across the country to encourage allergy testing to better understand penicillin allergies. About 10% of the population reports a penicillin allergy, but it's much less than that. That's an actual true penicillin allergy. One thing that I do with my patient, it's one of the spiels that I have, is that if they actually say, um, hey, you know what? I My grandmother told me that I had a penicillin allergy. I have about, I don't know, 10 to 15 questions that I ask them. I make a ton of detailed notes. I typically send them for a medical consult so that I can actually work with their primary care doctor to get them into true allergy testing. And so encouraging allergy testing among dental patients and and encouraging dentists to work with primary care providers is really important. I would say the third piece is if you know that you're a state where prescribing of dental antibiotics is really high, I would encourage state leaders and stakeholders and state dental directors to make an antibiotic stewardship course that's mandated for licensure renewal and work with the state organizations that it would require to do that. And in addition to that, create a state toolkit. There's so many templates that are out there. It's a pretty straightforward process that you could implement with a team or a small group of leaders that were really invested in antibiotic stewardship. And Erin, some states mandate continuing education for opioids, right? For dentists, for Mm -hmm. licensure renewal. So it wouldn't be that far flung from from opioid um, mandate. Interesting. I agree with Erin on the penicillin allergy labeling. You know, Zara, I think infectious disease pharmacists are leading the charge here as, as far as trying to get patients who are penicillin allergic delabeled. And I know that there's a lot of barriers to actually getting that done across a system versus at one individual pharmacy or one individual clinic. But looking at a broader picture, inappropriately labeling patients as being penicillin allergic actually starts in medical settings. And that subsequently impacts dental prescribing of antibiotics. Going back on the last podcast, I mentioned that Dentists are very risk averse. So very few dentists are doing what Aaron is describing as far as asking those questions. It would be great if every dentist did, but because they have, because dentists as a profession are risk averse, they 
don't want to prescribe a cephalosporin instead of a penicillin antibiotic, and they tend to then prescribe clindamycin, and that's what our data actually supports. So my first focus would be decreasing prescribing of clindamycin for patients labeled as penicillin allergic. And as I mentioned on the last podcast, we found that clindamycin was more likely to be overprescribed than amoxicillin. About 20% of all antibiotics prescribed by dentists are actually clinda. The next area I would try to tackle is pre-procedure prophylaxis in patients with orthopedic implants, so our knee and hip patients. And then the next thing is the duration of antibiotic prescriptions. Dentists do primarily prescribe antibiotics for prophylaxis. We estimate it's about 70% of all antibiotics prescribed by dentists. So we initially thought that dentists would not prescribe for a prolonged duration since most prophylaxis, when you think of cardiac patients, it's only for a dose. Um, however, the mean day supply of antibiotics prescribed by dentists is just over seven days. Giving patients multiple doses of prophylaxis for the next three years is probably not a good idea. Patients do not need to have a supply of amoxicillin sitting, sitting around at home for that period of time. And then I would also love professional organizations to put together guidelines for antibiotic prescribing surrounding tooth extractions and dental implants. We're seeing more and more extractions in the US as well as more and more implants. We also need more data on the need for antibiotic prophylaxis in immunocompromised patients, patients with diabetes, and in other patients who are considered to be medically complex. Wow. Go ahead, Erin. I, I would also say that I think these um, additional guidelines are really important. As a, cl a, a practicing clinical dentist, more clinical practice guidelines around the role of antibiotic use in conjunction with certain procedures, like we talked about with tooth extractions, dental implants, I think it's really important that we start to get these clinical practice guidelines out and in circulation. And Zara, maybe one thing Erin and I know that um, we're just taking for granted is that most of the data on antibiotic prophylaxis for tooth extractions is in patients getting their third molars, molars. extracted, mm -hmm. and those are your wisdom teeth. So those patients tend to be late teenage years, early 20s. That may not extrapolate to a 70-year-old person or a 50-year-old person who's never had oral health care. You know, using old data in the treatment of populations that don't apply to the current scenario is, is a common issue that we see in all of medicine. But I never knew that for extractions and antibiotics, the data come from healthier young patients and it's extrapolated to older and more medically complex patients. So yeah, that's a really nice point. Thank you for clarifying that. You both mentioned that some oral infections are managed by medical providers in urgent care or medical clinical settings, or medical clinic settings, excuse me. So have you seen any trends of inappropriate antimicrobial usage in the setting? And what are some of the tips you'd offer to providers treating patients without the ability to do much source control? There was a paper published in a dental journal. It's the Journal of the American Dental Association. It was published by the CDC. And they found that antibiotic prescribing for oral conditions is very common. About 55% of dental-related ED visits received an antibiotic. 
And of all ED visits, about 2% are for some kind of oral condition, whether tooth pain or, you know, an, an oral infection. Katie, thank you so much for bringing up dental-related emergency visits. There are a few challenges with receiving dental care in an emergency room. One challenge is that in order to diagnose an oral condition, a provider can benefit from, a specialist, from specialized equipment like an intraoral or extraoral x-ray. Often, these are not found in emergency departments. Also, as we've discussed before, treating a tooth with pain and or swelling is best achieved by definitive dental care. And few emergency departments have a dental clinic and provider at hand. Zara, one thing I failed to mention is that, you know, a lot of us practice in academic settings and there's a lot of push for interprofessional education and interprofessional care. And my, at my previous institution, they restructured their dental fellowships, especially for specialty dentists, and they had a rotation through the emergency department. So there was always a dentist available. In addition, they also took call from the ED. So that's one way for those of us who have access to a dental school, a pharmacy school, a medical school to easily incorporate that and as well as benefit from us learning from each other. All general practice residencies actually have a requirement where you go through some emergency department rotation. Interesting. You know, um, I hadn't really thought about required rotations for dental general practice residency, but I'm sure that's a lot like folks outside of pharmacy who probably have no idea about the required rotations and structure of a pharmacy practice residency. Though um, a lot of dentistry is practiced in small private practices, which is unlike the healthcare systems where many clinical ID pharmacists practice. So do either of you have good ideas or know of successful examples connecting with dentists? Well, first, I guess I would say read anything Katie Suda is a part of. <laughs> <laughs> These are a few things that I've, I've seen to be really helpful. One is hosting an interdisciplinary state conference. Um, we had one in Massachusetts and Illinois had one as well. And in our case in Massachusetts, a few of the large federally qualified health centers or community health centers, their directors attended. And afterward, um, I have never had an influx of a request like I had after that conference. Not only did I connect them with CE resources that I developed, but I actually went on site and did trainings for their staff as well. And it was cool because in one of the sites, there was five external sites as well. And so I went in, I hosted a webinar and a training for all their staff. They were allowed to ask questions. We adapted resources for their, their clinical setting. And I was able to actually do that for five sites in one visit. So that ended up being really successful. The second piece is the ASTDD just released a policy statement last week on antibiotic stewardship for uh, directors at the state level. And I think it's just the start of a ton of communication between state and territorial dental directors and other organizations or individuals within that state, charging them to create antibiotic stewardship programs. So I think that's just the tip of the iceberg there, but I think their policy statement was an effective tool because that will then get out to dental directors and dental directors will then be able to work um, with other organizations across the state to get them on board. 
Uh, three, the OSAP boot camp this year had a few speakers, including myself, that showed how you can include antibiotic stewardship in your practice to create a safer dental visit. I think this was a huge milestone slash really a mover in antibiotic stewardship because so many of the government programs and armed forces were there. And that is a huge piece to antibiotic stewardship in some of these larger systems across the country. So I feel like that was something that was, that was useful. And lastly, uh, I know we've already talked about the ASTD statement or the Association of State and Territorial Dental Directors statement that was released, but the FDI World Dental Congress has also issued a statement um, that included antibiotic stewardship and dentistry. The FDI World Dental Congress statement is an excellent example of how policy can be applied from a local level to a national level. They give examples of how to change practice to promote antibiotic stewardship by changing an individual dentist behavior, or how a policymaker could influence the behavior of all dentists across the country through a nationwide policy. I agree with the state conferences. The Illinois, as Erin mentioned, for the last, oh, I don't know, three years, I think, has had a track specific for dentists. And they've had, you know, about a couple dozen dentists participate, which has been great. For a private practice dentist to take a day off, close their practice for a day, I think is really amazing. But other organizations are also taking notice in that this is a need, needed area. Another international dentist organization, the International Association of Dental Research, they had a track last year which had, I think, three different sessions on antibiotic prescribing, and I spoke at, about my experience at one of them. The American Dental Association just participated in the C. difficile Advocacy Summit, which is sponsored by the Peggy Lillis Foundation. And Christian Lillis has been a, a speaker on the podcast as well. When I was at UIC, we implemented a dental antimicrobial stewardship program. And we implemented the dental antimicrobial stewardship program by expanding upon the current stewardship program, which is led by Dr. Alan Gross. The CDC core elements of outpatient antibiotic stewardship include dentists and dental practices in their target audience. We use the CDC core elements and the Illinois Department of Health toolkit to help us implement antibiotic stewardship and dentistry. Deborah Goff at the Ohio State University also did a community forum. There was representation from ortho and dentists when they worked through cases. And then they also had discussion. The two groups did come to some mutual understanding, as well as identified some areas where data was still really needed. Well, that's a number of really helpful resources. So aside from presenting, publishing, and disseminating information, how can pharmacists help? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, or is that the wrong way to approach this issue? I definitely think being available to dentists is really important because dentists, as Erin mentioned, dentists don't have a pharmacist typically around the corner. So I think first is being available to help dentists with a specific patient scenario or just general guidelines to prescribing antibiotics or even opioids. Again, make a sincere offer to help in any area that the dentist perceives a need. It may be the treatment of oral infections, or it may be launching an HPV, HPV vaccination program in their clinic. Pick an initial focus of something that is not controversial as a first step. Then expand to something that may be a little touchy. My initial focus 
that I wanted to focus on was prophylaxis in patients with prosthetic joints. And that was perceived to be too controversial. But now, in fact, there is a pathway and clinical decision support in the electronic dental record for patients with prosthetic joints. Katie, I totally agree. The role and the relationship of pharmacists and dentists really starts with relationship. The way that I practice is that I spend a lot of time developing relationships with other team members. And I would call my pharmacist probably daily. I would walk through a clinical scenario and say, Hey, I, I don't know exactly what's going on here. What do you think? Um, you know, I want to calculate this, this dose for an antibiotic in a child. And I want to walk through the calculation because I just want to make sure I did this right. I ask a ton of questions and that helped me develop a good relationship because then if she ever saw anything in my prescribing that seemed a little off, she would call me and say, Dr. Kennedy, did you mean to do this, this, and this? And we'd have a conversation about it. You know, it always makes me chuckle a little bit when I think about interprofessional relationships and education, because that's how I met my husband was literally we were in an interprofessional <laughs> session. <laughs> and in fact, it was an education initiative at UCSF, which is where we went to school and was filmed. So the very first day we met is filmed for posterity. So Katie, you've spent a lot of time engaging with prescribing data and clinical dentistry and you've managed to tease out some important information, particularly about prophylaxis. What are some of the challenges and limitations you anticipate as we look to answer more questions about appropriate prescribing, maybe by specialty or by state or by diagnosis code? Dentist code using dental procedure codes, and that's how dentists get reimbursed is based on these dental procedure codes. So dentists rarely use diagnostic coding, such as ICD-10 coding. Some dentists do, and in some states it's mandatory for Medicaid patients, but it's very rare. Dentists code for the procedure that was done, but not the diagnosis or why the procedure was needed. So of course, that's a big challenge when we think about assessing antibiotic prescribing by dentists, because we don't know which antibiotics were prescribed appropriately for an oral infection, or even for which, which oral infection, or which antibiotics were prescribed using prophy for prophylaxis. The vast majority of dentists in the US are in private practice and have to juggle patient care, being a boss of their staff, the hygienist, the receptionist, and just generally running a business in healthcare, you know, including reimbursement, marketing their practice, etc. So very few prescribing interventions have been implemented in dentistry, not even for opioids, but we have found that dentists are overwhelmingly receptive to resources to improve prescribing. One of my favorite quotes from our qualitative interviews from a dentist is that when you only prescribe five things, it's nice to know more about those five things. The perceived medical hierarchy can also influence prescribing. In this case, medical clinicians influence prescribing by dentists. Katie, I think you, you articulate the challenges in dentistry really well. It is challenging to navigate that, but I do think with the influence of interprofessional education and 
reports and even the Surgeon General's report that reminds everybody that the mouth is a part of your body and how healthy your mouth is, is an indication of how healthy your body is and the other way around. And so um, with all those resources, I do think that it's changing. The best pieces maybe of your work is this idea that dentists are receptive to resources and programs and opportunities for change. You know, Erin, the other thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is access to oral health care. That is true. One of the major barriers to receiving dental care is the cost of dental care. As far as adult dental benefits, some state Medicaid programs do not provide preventive oral health care. So if you think about it in a really broad scope for a second, if you're not providing preventive oral health care, oftentimes conditions like we talked about earlier when we walk through all the different stages of um, how tooth decay can go into other issues, things can progress, right? Because you're typically then only going to seek care um, in some cases when your insurance is going to cover your care. And if your insurance only covers emergency care, it's very likely that a patient may get into a cyclical pattern of only seeking care when there's emergency and then receiving emergency care. In September 2019, the Center for Healthcare Strategies released uh, an overview of Medicaid adult dental benefit. In three states, there's no Medicaid benefit at all. There's also other states that have a different um, expansion of their Medicaid benefit. So it starts out with emergency-only relief. Um, and so that emergency-only is receiving emergency dental care from a dentist. And 11 states have this very minimal coverage. And then the next step up is limited care. And this covers less than about 100 dental procedures. And 16 states have this limited coverage, which is the emergency care plus a few other procedures that could be diagnostic, preventative, or minor restorative procedures. But there's still a limit, so it can make sometimes seeking that care really challenging. When it comes to extensive care, this is a comprehensive mix of services. They still have a per person expenditure cap of $1,000. And this is 19 states that have this extensive Medicaid benefit. But what you can find is that there is a good number of states across the United States that provide very limited care or emergency only care for Medicaid adults. And so antibiotics, like Katie mentioned, may be used um, and may be a cheaper alternative to definitive dental care, depending on the patient's insurance coverage and their financial uh, situation. Not only is education important for these patients, but also it's important to educate policymakers on the benefits of expanding coverage specifically for preventive and comprehensive dental care. The more disease and infection that we prevent the less antibiotics we're, we will have to be able to use. And ultimately, this will have a life-saving impact on our entire globe when it comes to antibiotic resistance. Drop the mic. Booyah, we're done. <laughs> That's probably a very controversial way of looking at expanding Medicare and Medicaid. Again, I don't think people know that dental is not included in most Medicaid and Medicare. And that's why so many people go to the ED. Improving access to oral health through Medicaid and Medicare could decrease ED visits and potentially decrease antibiotic use by just getting them into the dentist. I really didn't anticipate expansion of Medicare or Medicaid as a discussion thread, but I appreciate the breakdown you provided, Erin, and the framing of this issue in terms of ED visits and unnecessary antibiotic prescribing. Okay, so both of you have been working in the space of antimicrobial usage in dentistry, Erin firsthand is a practicing dentist, and Katie is a steward and a consultant. Are there any takeaways or pearls you can leave with our listeners? 
As a non-dentist, some takeaways that I have is to keep in mind that dentists have limited access to data. Not only their prescribing data, but they're in general not very well versed in extracting data from the dental record. Remember that the mass the vast majority of dentists are in private practice, so they don't have a large IT infrastructure to pull data for them. Also, dentists do not have access to the electronic medical record. So the vast majority of diagnoses that they know about their patients are through patient self-report. Also keep in mind that dentists receive pressure to prescribe antibiotics from patients as well as medical clinicians. So this goes back to that medical hierarchy we talked about earlier. And some of our data suggests that the perceived pressure from medical clinicians to prescribe an antibiotic is actually quite a bit greater than the pressure dentists perceive to prescribe an antibiotic from a patient. But overall, I found that dentists really appreciate just initiating the conversation and the offer to collaborate because too frequently, dentists have been left out of the conversation to improve antibiotic prescribing. Katie, you make such great points. As a practicing dentist, here are a few things that I've learned when working with not only my patients, but other providers. It is very challenging to get prescribing data, but if you don't have data, collect your own. So use a chart audit because you have no idea how you practice if you don't objectively evaluate yourself. I've learned to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. It really helps to alleviate the pressure from patients and providers. So when a patient asks, can I please have an antibiotic for this? when it's not appropriate, or I just, I just want to take my prophylactic antibiotics. Let's just keep doing it how we've done it for so long. Um, because I, I won't, and, and we will have a conversation until we mutually agree on a safe way to use antibiotics. It's okay to admit that change is hard. I think my colleagues are doing a fabulous job. We prevent disease, we keep patients safe, and we make humans healthier. And I know we have a long way to go in so many aspects of our practice across all of medicine, but it's really encouraging to know that we are a part of a group that is constantly trying to make things better. Those are such great points for all stewards everywhere. It's not an adversarial thing, and change is hard. We're all trying to do right by our patients, and we're all trying to do what we think is best for patient care. Okay, we started with COVID, and I'm going to end with it too. In March, the American Dental Association called on dentists to postpone any non-urgent dental care, at least until April 30th. Even though many of the indications for which antibiotics are used are urgent, the lack of PPE and downstream effects of stay-at-home orders like kids out of school are probably keeping many dental offices doors closed. Erin, you alluded to this in part one, but do you think that we have had an increase in antimicrobial usage during this time? While I can't say for sure what the data will be months from now, I think it's likely that there will be a balance between antibiotic use for dental emergencies because dental care may not be available in many settings and the reduced need for prophylactic antibiotics for patients who are coming in for a routine visit. What I will comment on is my own personal practice. So I've actually been practicing teledentistry for the last six weeks, following the ADA guidelines for antibiotic use for tooth pain and swelling. And I've been trying to treat patients with true dental emergencies. 
Um, I personally have not noticed a prescribing increase. With that being said, my office and, and myself, we are equipped to provide emergency dental care, but I also have an oral surgeon that has been able to help in cases where maybe um, I felt like it was a little bit out of my comfort zone. And so depending on your patient population, location, and referral network, the use of antibiotics during this time could vary based on, on those factors by each provider. From my perspective, it's likely that there will probably be an increase in antibiotics prescribed for the treatment of oral infections, either appropriately or inappropriately. However, dentists mostly prescribe antibiotics for prophylaxis. And if there's few visits, this will probably decrease antibiotic prophylaxis prescriptions as well, which will likely decrease overall dentist prescribing of antibiotics during this time period. Interesting. Well, Katie, um, I hope one of your grants is going to help us answer this question. I really want to thank both of you for your time and all of the work you do surrounding this issue. I hope that you stay safe and that you have all the PPE you need and then some. Before I sign off, I want to acknowledge the Society of Infectious Diseases, Publications and Podcast Committee, and in particular, Aaron McCreary, Julianne Justo, and Travis Jones for their review and production of this podcast. Drop the mic. Booyah, we're done. <laughs>